short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to judge. 1948. Yeah, Al Jahis appeared in front of the House Un-American Activities uh, Commission to mm-hmm. try and clear his name. Yeah, as we mentioned in the last episode, uh, he had been accused by a guy called Whitaker Chambers of being a communist. Mm-hmm. Al Jahis was a very, very senior U.S. diplomat, very yes. well respected. Yes. Uh, from the president on down. And the HUAC committee uh, decided to let the whole thing go, mm-hmm. but this this young congressman called Richard Nixon right. decided where there's smoke, there's fire, <clears throat> and he convinced the committee yes. to let him chair a subcommittee mm. that would determine who was lying, his or Chambers, at least know. on the question of whether or not they knew each other because yeah. – Chambers was claiming they did. Hiss was claiming they yeah. didn't. He's, right. I, I don't know anyone called Whitaker Chambers. Right, yeah. Fuck that, yeah. Hiss was shown a photograph of Whitaker Chambers and said that the face oh. might look familiar, but he would like to see him in person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then Huack was holding this session in a New York hotel. Chambers was brought in. Hiss admitted that, indeed, he did know Chambers, but right. not under that name. He knew him under a different name, George Crosley, mm. and George Crosley had presented himself as a freelance writer. He right. said that in the mid nineteen thirties, and like so, this is like fifteen years earlier, eighteen, you know, 13, 14 years earlier. Right. He had sublet his apartment to this Crosley oh and given God. him an old car. Right. Which is Chambers, yeah, yeah, denied on the stand ever using the alias Crosley, although he did admit to Hiss's lawyers privately that it could have been one of his aliases. That's a hell of a coincidence. Uh, and I think, you know, everybody knows how we feel about coincidences. Oh, was that was that my name? I might have used it before when I did an article or something. So clearly Chambers is less than truthful at this point, and we're just getting started. Yeah. So then Hiss and Chambers both appeared before the HUAC subcommittee that Nixon was chairing in August 1948, right. and they had the following exchange. Yep. Hiss, did you ever go under the name of George Crosley? Chambers, not to my knowledge. Hiss, did you ever sublet an apartment on 29th Street from me? Chambers, no, I did not. Hiss, you did not? Chambers, no. Hiss, did you ever spend any time with your wife and child in an apartment on 29th Street in Washington when I was not there because I and my family were living on P Street? Chambers, I most certainly did. Hiss, you did or did not? Chambers, I did. Hiss, would you tell me how you reconcile your negative answers with this affirmative answer? Chambers, very easily, Alger. I was a communist and you were a communist. Oh, is that... Is that a gotcha? It feels like a gotcha, but something. It missing. makes no sense. Yeah. No. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. But Nixon. Did you ever sublet an apartment from me? No. Yeah. No. Did you spend any time <laughs> with your wife in this apartment? Yes. Yes. 
Oh, that so apartment. So I didn't sublet it from you, but I, was but I did live in that apartment. Yes, right. yes, yeah. Why? How do you can reconcile your answers? Because I was a communist and you were a communist? What the? It makes no fucking sense. It's complete gibberish. Exactly. But it's a congressional hearing, so, yeah. Now, because it was a congressional hearing, um, him saying that uh, Hiss was a communist right. was privileged Right. He couldn't be sued for defamation. So he's challenged Chambers to repeat that comment outside of the <laughs> hearing. Yeah. So Chambers things? went on Meet the Press, a national radio program, and publicly called Hiss a communist, and Hiss filed a libel lawsuit against him. Damn right. So, so this, so this libel lawsuit has been filed. Chambers retaliated by not by claiming that Hiss was not only a communist, but he was also a spy. Now, strangely, he did not make this accusation earlier. And on November seventeenth, nineteen forty-eight, he produced what would eventually be called the Baltimore Papers. Supposedly, notes that Hiss had had that that Hiss had had some notes typed up before Chambers could give them to the Soviets. But previously, Chambers denied committing espionage. So this is falling apart really quickly. So clearly he lied about not not uh, spying for the Soviets. And Chambers was found to be lying about when he quit the Communist Party. You had mentioned this on the previous episode. At first he said, oh, somewhere in 1937, I walked away because I knew it wasn't right. Turns out it was more like March of 1938, the year of the Baltimore documents. So he lied and he was a spy. So this is getting interesting very quickly. Yeah, so Chambers is changing his story um, yeah. quite dramatically here. There's something going on. He's up seems. in the ante, ante. Yeah. Yeah. He's, like you would think that before you are going to appear in front of the House on American Activities <laughs> Get your Commission, right? you would have your story straight, right, right. about when Rehearsing you were the a communist, when you yeah. weren't, yeah. what you did, what you didn't yeah. uh, do when you were a communist. Was I a spy? I was not a spy. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, on the surface it looks really suspicious here yes. that he's now now producing evidence. Right. Changing his story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like – uh, months and months later, like they both appeared. Well, let's go back. So, um, uh, when did Chambers first uh, get in front of HUAC? August. In yes. August 1948, he, he goes in front of HUAC and calls Hiss a communist. Yeah. It's in November that he produces these documents and starts changing his story. Right. So three months later, yeah. he magically produces 65 pages of mm -hmm. retyped State Department documents, supposedly right. retyped by Priscilla Hiss, yes. who was um, uh, Alger Hiss's wife at the right. time, mm -hmm. uh, retyped on the Hiss's home typewriter right the last of which was dated april 1st 1938 plus there were four wow. notes in hiss's handwriting summarizing the contents of the state department cables yes now why is the date on these documents important ray uh and what was the date i'm sorry 
April 1st, 1938. Huh. So uh. the last of the documents was dated April 1st, 1938. Right. Chambers produced them on November 17th, 1948. Right. The statute of limitations oh, for espionage right. is 10 years. So, boom, bitch, you can't get me for spying because the statute of limitations is run out. So, thank yes. you for playing. Yes. Right. Now, okay. they catch. couldn't get his right. for espionage either because the statute of limitations had run out. On both of them. What they, what they could get both of them for, though, right. is... Perjury, because they both lied in front of the committee right. about being involved in espionage, if in fact this is true. But yeah, these documents, the Baltimore documents, Hiss denied writing the note. He denied knowing about the documents. Expert right. confirmed it was his handwriting. But Hiss claimed uh, until the end of his life that mm-hmm. the documents had been forged. Right. That now the the judge, uh, as we'll see in the court cases that came out of this, said, "Well, um, Chambers didn't have the technical expertise to forge these documents, mm-hmm. but we know the FBI probably did have yeah. the expertise to forge these documents, and we know that Nixon was working with the FBI yes. and was determined to prosecute his to make a name for himself." And Hiss claimed that, you know, they had forged the documents. They'd managed to find a typewriter. There was this big investigation then about find the typewriter, which the Hisses had sold. They said, oh, we found the original typewriter and look here, we've... Yeah. We've, we've retyped documents it and matches. The, the typing matches, the characteristics. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and if I can add one more and to your list, and obviously during World War II, the Americans and the British and the Soviets and everybody else who was fighting became masters at forging documents, whether it's typewriters, whether it's handwriting. I mean, that was its own subset of the war. So, not, I'm just saying, I'm not saying it was forged, but not impossible if it had been. That's all I'm adding. Yeah. Yeah. And there was this, I mean, and uh, even up into the 70s, there was a great documentary that Chrissy and I watched mm-hmm. uh, recently. Um, let me just try and find the name of it. And holding on to notes for 10 years, uh, I don't, I barely can hold on to my kids for 10 years, if, you know, lose them if they didn't come home every day. So that that's impressive as well. But theoretically, he was holding this as evidence for the day when he would make his accusation, I guess would be one argument that he probably made. So there's this uh, documentary called Murder Among the Mormons that we watched, (laughs) um, directed by Jared Hess, who made um, Napoleon Dynamite. Right. Uh, Oh, wow. And it's a documentary about uh, a guy in the uh, 70s called Mark Hoffman. Mm-hmm. who forged a whole bunch of documents. He was a Mormon in oh, wow. Salt Lake City, forged a whole bunch of documents uh, that, uh, including stuff from Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, letters by George Washington, John Adams, Daniel Boone, Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, <laughs> John Hancock, Abraham just Lincoln, Moses. Paul Revere. No, just joking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just boom, and he found them all and, in the desert. 
Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he would go, oh, I found this old book in an old bookstore and it's got this letter in it. And, Fuck. And he would he would sell them and they were all verified by the FBI. They'd bring oh, in yeah. FBI handwriting experts and go, yeah, no, these are legitimate. Then he started, when some people got suspicious, he right. started sending them letter bombs and killing them in the mail. To that, try will, and, uh, that will do it. Yeah. That, that will do it. Um, so this is this is all happening in the 70s and uh, early 80s. Yeah. So my point is that their ability to um, verify handwriting, even up into the 70s and 80s, was dodgy, let alone in the right. you know, early 50s, yeah. late 40s, early 50s. But, you know, it, 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 I'm pretty sure the FBI had people that could forge handwriting Means. as well. Yes. yes. Yes, they wanted to. If I could. Anyway. And yeah. Just just let me add to that because Heather, like Tom Hanks, kind of weird, she collects old typewriters and she's got one down there from the early 1940s, I think, and I was playing on it. And the idea of getting a similar typewriter, typing out something, you know, if you found something from the original one, you could, what, what do they call it? You can make grooves and marks and whatever on the little metal pieces of the letters to make it match the characteristics. So again, is it a pain in the ass to do? Absolutely. Am I going to frame Heather one day? I've already started, but the point is it is not impossible to duplicate the stuff with know-how and time. Yeah. Um, so these are the Baltimore documents, right. and that's used uh, not to prosecute Chambers, no. who, who had these <laughs> top-secret State Department documents, yes. but to go after Hiss yeah. because they had both uh, denied be, uh, being involved in espionage. Right. It was used as evidence against his, not against Chambers, no. who actually had them in who his possession. Never, and he was not charged, as far never as Never charged. I never charged. Yeah. yeah. But Even was. though he admitted he had previously lied, right. both about being involved in espionage and about the date, because they go, hold on, you quit the party in 1937. Right. Why would you have these documents that are <laughs> dated 1938? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah no, I, I don't I, do. Sorry, I got dates that. very well. Wrong. Yeah, yeah, God. Yeah. and then it gets crazier. Yeah. It gets crazier because you, you know, you don't have a really good detective story, or intrigue or espionage unless you can set some of the scenes in a pumpkin patch. I, that's my personal opinion. Uh, what say you, Cam? Yeah. So <laughs> on December second, right. He, uh, Chambers, this is, leads HUAC investigators to a pumpkin patch on his Maryland farm. Sure, sure. Where he reveals a hollowed-out pumpkin mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where he has hidden five rolls of 35-millimeter film that right. he said came from Hiss in 1938. Yeah. Now. Pumpkin say. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Some of the uh, rolls of film had nothing on them because they'd been overexposed, right? Uh, like, like you, um, <laughs> your, your secret uh, OnlyFans account. I, yeah. um, but on some of them, there were images of State Department documents that were classified at the time, right? And these become known as the pumpkin papers. That's sexy. Now, just... all of the other papers that we're familiar with, the Pentagon right. papers, right. The Panama papers, right. are all references to the pumpkin papers. These are the original. The original PPs. Papers. Gotcha. The original papers, yeah. <laughs> and there is video, which I watched, of um, Nixon 
dramatically studying this uh, film uh, with a magnifying glass in front of cameras and reporters and say, I have just seen uh, these documents. uh, (laughs) A young Richard. That was good. The pumpkins don't prove that those came from Hiss. There's there's not a direct. Anyway, there's not a direct link. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but um, Chambers claims they came from his. So, now again, yeah, Chambers is in possession of these things, yeah. never charged with a crime. Yeah, why was it? But his, char- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, because it was a they were it was a setup. They were going after his. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, his went to trial twice. The first trial was May 1949. Ended with a hung jury. Sure, um, not a well hung no. jury. That's a. It's a different thing. (laughs) Can I just say real quick, because I love this. So for right now, let's just go on the assumption that Hiss, at at the very least, can come across as a straight shooter, just a fucking American-made, God is white, straight shooter. When you say the jury was hung, I think it was eight against and four uh, jury jurors for him. And supposedly at the end of it, he was upset because he, those eight people didn't believe him that he was literally pouring his heart out going, I've done all these things. I'm a good American. I'm loyal, whatever. And the fact that eight of you voted against it. So, so it hurt his feelings, but the good news, like you said, hung jury. So they're going to have to try him a second time. Yeah. Um, I'm going to play a bit of a clip of, uh, our mate, uh, Richard Nixon here. Hmm. I am holding in my hand a microfilm, a very highly confidential secret State Department document. These documents were fed out of the State Department over 10 years ago by communists who were employees of that department and who were interested in seeing that these documents were sent to the Soviet Union, where the interests of the Soviet Union happened to be in conflict with those of the United States. Now, in 1938, mm-hmm. The United States had uh, was not involved in World War II at that stage, right. was not in an alliance with the Soviet Union, right. uh, yet they would become right. partners and friendly with the Soviet Union a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure where their interests uh, disagreed in 1938. They weren't at war. Right. Uh they hmm. did have uh, some diplomatic uh, uh, relationship because FDR yeah. he opened you know, up the door, uh, yeah. sent diplomats there in the early thirties. Absolutely. Um, but okay, so passing on state documents to the Soviet Union to any foreign nation, any. as we know, is exactly, uh, exactly. is uh, bad. No, now, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, we were talking about this before we started recording. So during the first trial. Chambers admits to lying under oath, and we were talking earlier about his having such character witnesses as the former Democratic candidate uh, Adlai Stevenson, Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, another former Democratic presidential candidate, John W. Davies, who I, to be honest, I don't remember. So Cal and I were talking about if, well, eventually when we go to trial, and it's it's going to happen, who can we get as character witnesses? Um the list was shorter than what I just read, and the people on it were less distinguished. So I think it's just a matter of time before we go down. So if anybody wants to email in that you will support us uh, or mail it to me on the back of a $100 bill, that would mean so much to me. I'll hold on to that so I can call you in the future. 
Uh, I apologize for the digression, Cam. Please, please continue. Truman, who was uh, still president at the time of this first um, right. trial, called it a red herring. Yes. <clears throat> Truman getting involved. Um, the, the term red herring uh, became popular in 1807. Oh, um, tell me. English polemicist William Cobbett right. told a story about having used a strong-smelling smoked fish to divert and distract hounds from chasing a rabbit. Aww. So that's apparently where the uh, term was popularized. Did, anyway. did he burn the bird? Because it's still cruelty to animals, but... The bird? A herring. What a is herring. a herring? It's a fish. I'm sorry. Sorry. I don't know what the fuck a herring is. I have fucking no idea. I thought I knew. It's a fish with wings. <laughs> I just think it's a cool Ooh. scene. Did he burn the bird? <laughs> Fuck me. That's how you get him to distract from the dogs from the rabbit. To what I would have There's done. actually no fish called a red herring. It's a particularly strong kipper made from uh, fish, typically herring, that is strongly cured in brine or heavily smoked. Mm. A kipper is uh, a herring, a small oily fish. Um, right. Popular in some regions. United Kingdom and Ireland, not and County. I think in North right. North America right. in some places, right? And yeah, apparently in Virginia, it's a kind of uh, bird. <laughs> it's a dead bird because uh, we burnt it. Uh, so tell me the about use, this. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, use yeah. of herring to distract right. pursuing scent hounds was tested on MythBusters. Although the hound used in the test stopped to eat the fish and lost the fugitive scent temporarily, it eventually backtracked and located the target, right. resulting in the myth being classified by the show as busted. So it's more of a delaying tactic than a distraction. Or you take what you can get. Well, it distracted it for a minute. Yeah, and then got caught. Um, Good for that. A red herring is found in the first Sherlock Holmes story, a study, a study in Scarlet. Right. Where the murderer writes at the crime scene the word Rache, revenge in German, Rache, leading the police to mistakenly presume that a German was involved. That's That's, a uh, a classic example of a red herring. That's also an example of some weak detecting, if I may. Lestrange, Lestrade, what was his name? Yeah, Lestrade. Lestrade, thank you. And this show uh, that you're now listening to is a red herring because we claimed we were going to do a show on the Cold War. (laughs) We're getting there. And the Rosenbergs. We're warming up. We're warming up. We will definitely be to the Rosenbergs before summer is over. Guaranteed. Mm. Guaranteed. Not not really. Maybe. So what about the second? Yeah, at the end of this, at the end of this year, you and I will have been working together for ten years. Ten years! Oh my god! Okay, I'm gonna don't take this personally, but there's a line from Black Adder, which probably explains why I'm so tired of the sight and so sick of the sight of you, (laughs) or like syphilis. Anyway, I should probably take that out. But anyway, what's the line? No, it's just that when he goes, he goes, I've been with you ever when Baldrick says, I've been serving you, your servant ever since I was born. And he goes, that's probably why I'm so utterly sick of the sight of you, Baldrick. Now take your stuff and <laughs> chuck it out on the streets. Yes, you sweet master or whatever. I can't remember, but fucking love that show. Anyway, 
He goes, oh, oh, he goes, oh, I've been with your family since X date. He goes, so a syphilis, get out. Right, Morris. Let's try again, shall we? This is called adding. If I have two beans and then I add two more beans, what do I have? Some beans. <laughs> yes and no. Let's try again, shall we? I have two beans, then I add two more beans. What does that make? A very small casserole. Baldrick, <laughs> the ape creatures of the Indus have mastered this. Now try again. One, two, three, four. So how many are there? Three. What? And that one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are Baldrick. <laughs> Whatever works. So let's get back to this. So Truman called the investigation a red herring. Yes. Yeah. The smoky He fish. was so confident that it was nonsense that the right. President of the United States uh, said that publicly. Now, there was yeah. a second trial that went from November 1949 to January 1950, mm-hmm. and this time the jury found Hess guilty. Now. Right. Uh um what day did President Truman's uh, term uh, of as being president uh, expire? What was his last day as being president of the United States? Was it January 20th, 1953? Yes. Woo! What day was his found guilty? Oh. Uh January 21st. 1950. Uh, right. It's like three years earlier. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know. No, no I, I know what I, you were going for. I was going to say it was the day after his, but it wasn't. It was like I, can, I, can, I, I can edit yeah. that out. Don't worry about it. Yeah. No, I'll leave it in. Anyway. Fuck them. They fuck found the him listeners. guilty. Right. Yeah, fuck my, fuck my ego. <laughs> no. Like when that woman said, fuck Europe. Fuck the listeners. <laughs> yeah, fuck the EU. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, do you want to explain what was, how should I put this, different, maybe less legal during the second trial or, or just what was different with the second yeah, trial? Yeah, we'll first. Okay. get into it. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you get into it. Go. Okay. Well, on, on certainly on both in both uh, attempts, both trials, they they relied heavily on the uh, the typed documents. You know, identifying the characteristics, the typewriter itself. Again, pretty amazing to find it years later, but whatever. But there was this woman. I don't know how to say her first name. Heidi or Heed or whatever the fuck. H e d e Massing. She was an Austrian-born confessed Soviet spy who was being threatened with the tor- uh, deportation. Believe it or not. She was not allowed to testify in the first trial, but the second judge, as far as I know, lets her in, and she recounts meeting Hiss at a party in 1935, where he was trying to um, recruit a supposed another spy, Noel Field, to go from one spying team to uh, to his to um, his his own spying team. So I guess for a lot of the um, jury, that probably locked it in, and he was found guilty of perjury. Again, the uh, the statute of limitations had wore, um, run out, but if he did lie, they can get him for perjury. Yeah. So the second trial um, found his guilty, and according to one historian, his spoke only two sentences in court. <laughs> After he'd been found guilty, the first was to thank the judge. The second 
was to assert that one day in the future it would be disclosed how forgery by typewriter had been committed. And Hiss spent the rest of his life trying to prove that these documents had been forged. Um, He was sentenced to five years imprisonment on each of the two counts of of perjury uh, to run concurrently. Yeah, thanks. Um, At the press conference afterwards, Dean Acheson, who was the Secretary of State at the time, uh, who had gone to Harvard (laughs) with Al Jahis, said, I do not intend to turn my back on Al Jahis. Then he quoted Jesus, I was a stranger and ye took me in, naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. were like, why did Jesus keep saying yay, ye all the time? Was, do you think it was Kanye? <laughs> it was um, the original Kanye, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, Nixon was unhappy about Acheson uh, quoting the Bible in defense oh. of Al Jahis. He said these words were sacrilege. Yes. And uh, the two of those guys didn't get along very well. Right. The verdict was upheld by the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And when Hiss's lawyers took it to the Supreme Court to try and get them to review it, they refused to review it. Right. And again, going back to the whole Cold War, you know, zooming out just for a second, zooming out for a second, Cold War, communist versus capitalist, religion versus atheist. Nixon got angry and he, he said it was sacrilege because obviously he was a communist trying to use or he was a communist sympathizer trying to use the Bible to defend his friend. He gets he gets indignant for all the religious people in America, again, scoring more points. He seems like the almost not not so much the boy next door, but a good Christian who's trying to run for office and keep our country safe. And like we said on the last episode, Nixon is going to ride this baby all the way to the Oval Office. Yeah, he really did uh, lean heavily into the whole his thing and him making his bones as a Ardent anti-communist, yes. uh, and really pushing that hard for the rest it, of his uh, life. It worked. Really. It worked. Yeah. yeah. Now, as we started off in the beginning of the last episode, sort of talking about the reason we're going into the Hiss story is it really made a huge splash in the United States. The idea that the Soviets had penetrated the highest levels of the U.S. government in the 30s yes. and 40s. Hiss was a well-educated, well-connected uh, guy from an old American family. Oh, yeah. Didn't fit the profile of a typical Soviet spy. Mm-hmm. And it really scared the shit out of Americans. And that was the whole point <laughs> exactly. of the whole thing, right? If he could do it, then anybody could. I mean, yeah, because you said he doesn't fit the mold. Why did he do it? But Americans jumped over that. If, if he was guilty, and they went right to the fear. If this guy can turn against his country and serve the Soviets, none of us are safe. And not only did Richard Nixon use it to promote his career, your, uh, your, your, your fellow Virginian, Joseph McCarthy, Hell yeah. gave a speech two weeks later at a place called Wheeling in West Virginia, yes. just up the road from where you are. <laughs> Everything's uh, just up the road from where I'm at. But yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. Uh, and launched his career as uh, an, an anti-communist alongside Richard Nixon. So 
the Hiss case kicked off Richard Nixon and also Joe McCarthy's uh, McCarthyism. Yeah. Now, Hiss served only three and a half years, was released in 1954, age 50, but he'd been disbarred. Right. So he right. ends up working as a salesman for a stationery company in New York City. That's coming down. Then he works as an administrative assistant for a comb manufacturing company. Yes. This is a guy who put together <laughs> the United Nations. Yes. Yes. He chaired the, the committee. He was in the room at yes. the Yalta conference. Yes. Yalta, Yalta. Yalta. And now he's working for a comb maker and he's earning $20,000 a year. My, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, unbelievable. Yes. With the, the flimsiest of evidence yeah. thrown against him, Yes, his life was basically destroyed. In 1957, he published a book called In the Court of Public Opinion, which uh, pointed out all of the flaws in the prosecution's case against him, right. maintaining that the typewritten documents had been forged, Mm-hmm. Uh, now, decades later, when the FBI files were disclosed under the Freedom of Information Fact, it turned out that the FBI also doubted that the trial exhibit was, in fact, Hiss's machine, and right. for exactly the same reasons. Yes. But they said it internally. They didn't say it publicly. So yeah. decades later, even some members of the FBI called yeah. bullshit on the yeah. evidence. So. Yeah. You know, yeah. who, if it wasn't the FBI who uh, forged the documents, if they were forged, it wasn't the FBI right. who did it. Who right. forged the documents? Was it Chambers? Was Chambers that smart? Or yeah. was it uh, someone else inside the FBI doing it without the knowledge of other people? Did Richard Nixon uh, get J. Edgar Hoover? You know, you know, it's yeah. not hard to imagine a conversation saying, look, we, no. we know he's guilty. Yeah. We, we don't, have don't have evidence have... to prosecute exactly. him. We need your help. Get one of yeah. your guys to yeah. come up with evidence to yeah. that we can use to prosecute him. In one of your labs. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the pumpkin papers, the rolls of film, were <laughs> classified <laughs> as being too secret to be released to the public. Yes. Until... Yes. Um, the mid-70s. In 1975, an uh, independent researcher called Stephen Salant, who was an economist at the University of Michigan, sued yeah. the U.S. Justice Department when it denied his request for access to the Pumpkin Papers under the Freedom of Information Act. Right. Um, and Alger Hiss also um, had lawsuits against them to try and get access to this. Mid-1975, the Justice Department released copies of the pumpkin papers that had been used to implicate Hiss in the lawsuit, and there were some barely legible copies (laughs) of non-classified Navy Department documents, talking about life drafts and fire extinguishers being painted. There were two of them that were photographs of State Department documents that had been um, classified in 1938. Mm-hmm. Now, but they were so they were deemed so inconsequential right. that um, a few days after they were released, Hiss was readmitted to the Massachusetts bar. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the state Supreme Judicial Court overruled its committee of bar overseers and stated in a unanimous decision that 
Despite his conviction, Hiss had demonstrated the moral and intellectual fitness required to be an attorney. Hiss was the first lawyer ever readmitted to the Massachusetts bar after a major criminal violation. And another thing you need to know, you mentioned that he spent three years and eight months in jail. While he was there, he acted as a volunteer attorney, advisor, and tutor to many of his fellow inmates. So again, I I don't know what the definitive answer is, but he certainly seemed to be willing and able to help almost anybody who came into his sphere. So you know, there's a lot to commend this guy or recommend this guy. Yeah. I'm going to play a clip. This is a bit of an interview done with him in 1970. Mm. Prejudice, fear, hysteria about communism or imaginary communism or leftism of the 50s, the early 50s, then on into the mid-50s, was extreme. I have a friend at Princeton who has put it very well, I think, professor at Princeton, who says that anti-communism has been the anti-Semitism of America. That has largely dissipated the McCarthy hysteria, the McCarthy atmosphere. Mr. Hiss, have your political views changed today from those views that you held in the 1930s? I would say, if anything, I feel a bit more radical because the conditions today are graver than they were then. And I think they demand perhaps more radical action. Mr. John Gardner has a phrase that I think is quite good, that actually society seems to be disintegrating in the United States. And that that calls for rather radical action. I think we're a long way from recognizing it yet. Is any new evidence about the kind of person that Whitaker Chambers himself was likely to come to light in the near future that may change the complexion of your case? Yes, there's a, a book being written in the States now, research into Chambers' life, which indicates that he wasn't the communist high panjandrum that he liked to think. It was another part of his impostorship. This is something we had not gone into. We didn't have time. We assumed that if he was the kind of person he said he was, why this wasn't a very pretty picture, but he seems to have been only a fantasist. This is a clip now from the HUAC trials of uh, Whitaker Chambers speaking. Whitaker Chambers died in 1961. Hiss was released from jail in 1954. He's still trying to clear his name. The crucial evidence concerns the typewriter that was produced at the trial on which the secret documents were alleged to have been typed. Was it Hiss's own typewriter or another? Hiss's lawyer continued to investigate the question of forgery by typewriter. The conventional statement that a typewriter can be identified from all others that its typescript is like a fingerprint in uniqueness. It was his conviction that that didn't seem quite right. That led him to have a mechanic prepare deliberately a fabricated typewriter, merely from typescript of the machine that we had put in evidence. And that was so successful that experts we consulted thought that if they hadn't been tipped off in advance, they certainly wouldn't have noticed the difference. And in the motion for a new trial, uh, we submitted samples, blind samples from both, and challenged the government to 
distinguish them. The challenge was not taken up. But the evidence that he then developed or found, discovered, was first that the number of the machine, 230099, was a serial number that could not have been on the machine that had been given, that had been bought by my father-in-law and given to his daughter, my wife, it, because it would have been manufactured after the date of the transfer. Wasn't it rather strange that this was only checked after the trial? One would have thought that this would have been the first things that would have occurred to suppose, counsel. Suppose that kind of uh, uh, afterthought comes along all the time. In the first place, we were overconfident during the trial anyway. I, I think that may be one reason. We thought, I just couldn't believe that uh, a jury of my peers would would take seriously what would not have been taken seriously 10 years earlier, and I don't think would be taken seriously today if being done over. On the basic... So, yeah, he's, it's wow. very interesting to watch interviews of him. He comes across, you know, as, as yeah. very Composed. eloquent, very yeah. simple, very... Yeah, very like, I mean, maybe he's a really good actor. Maybe he was a good bullshit artist. But I don't know. I just get a yeah. read from this guy that he just seems legit yeah. and honest. Anyway, um, in 1988, Hiss wrote an autobiography, Recollections of a Life, uh, maintained his innocence right up until he died of emphysema in 1996, uh, wow. four days after his 92nd birthday. Not bad. His friends and family still claim he was innocent. Mm-hmm. In his uh, 1976 memoir, former White House counsel John Dean mm-hmm. stated that President Nixon's chief counsel, Charles Colson, told him that Nixon had admitted in a conversation with him that HUAC had fabricated a typewriter, oh. saying we built one on the Hiss case. Fuck. So who in now, the fuck now? Yeah, yeah. When Dean's book came out, Colson said that he had no recollection of Nixon ever having told him that. Mm-hmm. Nixon disputed it, obviously. But Dean said that he had diary notes that he had written where Colson had quoted the president and seemed serious when he quoted the president. Um so uh, Anthony Summers, who wrote a book about all of this, historian, said that Dean's version of events is plausible. This is the quote. Had Nixon asked the FBI to manufacture evidence to prove his case against Hiss, Hoover would actually have been only too glad to oblige. <laughs> and he, he was told this by former FBI assistant director uh, Sullivan. As to whether Nixon would actually have gone as far as to frame Hiss, the later record includes disquieting instances of forgery or planting false information. Jesus. So the FBI under Hoover was known to, you know, do that kind of stuff yeah. to, you yeah. know, it was a Tuesday. go after people they wanted Absolutely. to. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Cold yeah. War historian John Fleming uh, disagrees. Mm-hmm. He says that the White House tapes Never has Nixon saying anything that corroborates Colson's statement about forging a typewriter. Right. Um, there is a conversation on the White House tapes with John Dean that sounds to certain transcribers like we made a typewriter, yeah. but Fleming says it's actually a reference to Hiss's legal team 
And in the tapes, whatever Nixon talks about his, he talks about how they tried his in the press, not the law courts, because that's how things were done. We yes. won the Hiss case in the papers. We did. I had to leak stuff all over the place because the <laughs> Justice Department would not prosecute it. Hoover didn't even cooperate. It was one in the papers. I leaked out the papers. I leaked out the testimony. I had Hiss convicted before he ever got to the grand jury. Go back and read the chapter on the Hiss case and six crises, and you'll see how it was done. It wasn't done waiting for the goddamn courts or the <laughs> attorney general or the FBI. The Hiss case and other communist spies uh, then, this is no longer quoting Nixon, then sort of just put the conservatives in the US on the high ground. You know, they were able to put the Democrats on the defensive. Yes. They were able to say that they were weak on communism because they had been supporting Alger Hiss. And, uh, you know, it, it really was another turning point on this whole you got to be tough on communism thing. Mm-hmm. McCarthy... Um, then gave a couple of speeches where he referred to Adlai Stevenson as Alger. Right. Um, probably deliberately. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Jesus Christ. So Nixon's bragging, I had this guy pegged as guilty or I had the country convinced he was guilty before he set footing in the courtroom. Goddamn. Yeah. It. Yeah. When Hiss died in 1996, Anthony Lake, who at the time was Bill Clinton's national security advisor and Mm -hmm. then was nominated to be CIA director, was asked whether Hiss had indeed been a Soviet spy, and he replied, I don't think the evidence is conclusive. Mm. And in this country, supposedly innocent until proven guilty and not in the papers. Now... Today, though, uh, historians are still um, can't can't agree on right. whether or not Hiss was guilty. After the Soviet Union uh, dissolved in 1991, you know, different people were interviewed, documents were released. They've been searching mm-hmm. for evidence of this. Alger Hiss petitioned General Dmitry Antonovich Volgokhinov. Right. who became Yeltsin's military advisor and had access to all of the Soviet intelligence archives, he asked him to re- release any Soviet files on the Hiss case. Um, mm. Nick- Nixon and the director of his presidential library also tried to get the Soviets to release files. Right. Um, Russian archivists reviewed the files and in 1992 said they had found no evidence that Hiss ever engaged in espionage for the Soviet Union or that he was a member of the Communist Party. Right. So, So, yeah. Never know. know. We'll never know the definitive, I guess, unless something comes out. Yeah. Um, Even Vitaly Pavlov, who ran Soviet intelligence work in North America in the 30s and 40s for the NKVD, said that Hiss never worked for the USSR as one of his agents. Mm. Um, Then in 2003, General Julius Kobyakov said that that he was the one who would search the files for evidence of Hiss. Mm -hmm. He said that Hiss did not have a relationship with any of the organisations that he was aware of in the Soviet Union. Um, in 2007, Svetlana Chervonaya, 
a Russian researcher studying the Soviet archives mm -hmm. said that based on the documents she'd reviewed, Hiss was not implicated. Right. In May 2009, at a conference hosted by the Wilson Center, Mark Kramer, director of Cold War Studies at Harvard University, stated that he did not trust a word that Kobyakov says, <laughs> but at the same conference, oh. uh, historian Ronald Radosh reported that while researching the papers of Marshal Voryshilov, mm -hmm. he and Mary Habeck had encountered two GRU files referring to Al Jahis as our agent. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's all over the place. There, people are saying there's no evidence. People are saying there is evidence. Um, yeah. It, it seems to me that the, the jury's still out on right. this one. In all your research, um, did you ever find any code names? Because we're going to see in the future episodes between the Rosenbergs, one had a code name and one didn't. Actually, Julius had several code names, but that was kind of like, you know, everybody was, as far as I know, everybody who did something for the, uh, who had a Soviet handler had a code name. And I never ran across an Alger Hiss code name. Not that that's definitive, but that's just one more piece of the puzzle. No, there was a name, Ales, A-L-E-S. Okay. In the Venoni document that they said was supposedly uh, referring to Hiss, but there was right. no evidence to back that up. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. they you know, they assumed that that was referring to Hiss, um, mm -hmm. but there was no real hard proof. Right. So that, you know, so that's sort of the Alger Hiss story in a nutshell. And I, I guess the key takeaways for me are that they didn't go after Chambers, even though he had all of these documents supposedly. They went after Hiss. They went after yeah. him for perjury, not espionage, because the – statute limitations had run out mm -hmm. and the case was pretty pretty flimsy i mean yes. this whole we he proved said, we said. managed to find the typewriter yeah. months later chambers produced evidence months later changed yeah. his story um it, it, yeah it yeah. all seems very very dodgy yeah. um but anyway yeah. back to the general story of spies um right. Klaus Fuchs was arrested in February 1950. He was the um, German theoretical physicist. Uh, from 1942 to 1948, he had apparently told everything he knew about the Manhattan Project to the Soviets. Yes. And was probably way more important than Alger Hiss or anyone else because he was, mm -hmm. um, you know, he had a very important role in Los Alamos. Right. Um, but as a, as we said in the last episode, he was revealed through the Venona project. That led to his courier, an American chemist called Harry Gold, who turned right. up in the Venona project. His code names were Goose, Arno, and Mad. Mm. Gold had another informant, David Greenglass, whose code names were Bumblebee, Caliber, and <laughs> Zinger. Right. And David Greenglass named his brother-in-law Julius Rosenberg, who had code names Antenna, Liberal, and King, and his sister Ethel uh, Rosenberg. Yeah, and this was uh, right right before this. Um, David Greenglass promised Julius he would never, ever, ever rat him out, and it took him an entire eight hours to rat him out. 
but yeah. needs must. You, you do what you, but I do want to, I know we're going to end soon, but I do want to add this real quick. So just to give everybody context, when, um, Julius Rosenberg is arrested. Keep in mind that this is roughly around the same time as that the Soviets still have Eastern Europe and it doesn't look like they're giving it up. The communists in China have finally won the Chinese Civil War. Russians are testing an atomic bomb. Alger Hist is arrested. Klaus Fuchs, as, as you said, it starts pouring out his heart because of Venona and the Korean War. So what you're about to hear is uh, in a context of extreme fear um, literally Americans feeling that they're going to lose everything, that they, they might be nuked by the Soviets at any any day now. So there's a lot going on underneath the Rosenberg trial that we're going to get to, because it goes on for, what, two and a half, three years. But there's a lot, a lot of, of underpinnings that really push Truman, uh, Eisenhower, the State Department, and a lot of other players in, in ways they probably could not have imagined a couple of years before. Yeah. So... Fuchs was um, arrested and and sentenced by the British. Mm-hmm. They gave him 14 years in prison. He served nine and they shipped him off to East Germany. Right. Uh, back in the United States, Harry Gold was convicted, given a 30-year sentence and served 15. David Greenglass served uh, 10 of his 15-year sentence. Mm-hmm. But the Rosenbergs were executed. Yes. Uh, you know, these other people had been convicted of espionage mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. involving nuclear secrets. They were given jail terms. The Rosenbergs were executed. And that's the reasons why is we want to, is what we want to explore over the next couple of episodes. Yes. Um, Julius Rosenberg's job was recruiting and managing other spies, allegedly. Mm-hmm. He, he had a spy ring that it consisted of about a dozen friends and engineers. From 1944 to 1950, they sent to the Soviets um, various plans on U.S. technology, uh, radio, sonar, military military electronics, jet, engine mm-hmm. technology. Um, but during the, their case, the prosecutors focused on them leaking Nuclear secrets, secrets around the bomb. Because right. I think, of course, the thing that terrified the Americans was they had lost, were losing anyway, the uh, monopoly that they had on the atomic bomb. Yes. But again, Klaus Fuchs, Harry Gold, David Greenglass didn't get executed for passing on nuclear secrets, only the Rosenbergs. And just to give that to comparison, um, everybody probably has heard, um, what is it, uh, Tokyo Rose and Axis Sally? They were not executed. They were just given in prison, uh, prison sentences. And like the, the others, I don't think they served their full term. So again, like you were saying, all these other people get prison. What the heck was going on for this married couple with two kids to be executed? Yeah. You know, during the prosecution, as we'll see, the Justice Department claimed that Greenglass mm-hmm. – Gave who was uh, the brother-in-law of of Julius Rosenberg gave the secret of the bomb to the Soviets, right. and of course there was no one secret of yeah. the bomb. It's a little complicated. There's a whole bunch of little moving parts. <laughs> right. Historians today tend to agree that whatever Greenglass gave the Soviets was nowhere near as important as what Klaus Fuchs 
yes, would have given them. Exactly. Um, but again, it was the Rosenbergs that they determined to make a case of, uh, to make an example of. Now, as we'll see in the next couple of episodes, the level of Ethel Rosenberg's involvement is uh, still very questionable. Yes. Historians tend to agree that she probably knew what her husband was doing, mm -hmm. probably agreed with what he was doing, shared his ideals, but yeah. her actual involvement, she didn't have any access to Los Alamos. Right. She, uh, you know, maybe have been a messenger. Right, yeah. And she had quit her job when she had her first kid and then they had the second child and she was pretty much a stay-at-home mom, so... And before she had the first child, she had a job somewhere. But, yeah, so she's a housewife. She may be a messenger. She may have hid money. It was Julius who was doing whatever was going on. And she didn't even have a code name. No one could ever find a code name for her. So, again, flimsy on her. But as we're going to find out, she was a pawn being used by the federal government to put pressure on her husband. It was a bluff of life and death. Yeah, and even after he was executed, they went ahead and executed her as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, we'll, we'll get into that in the next episode, the role of the Rosenbergs in terrorizing America's public about how far their government and military had been penetrated by Soviet intelligence. on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. <laughs>